The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's Monday. It's the right hook, and it's news talk. George Hook here, and uh, I've got some of the things that really got me going today on today's program. Well, I've wanted to talk to my guest for a long time, and I'm delighted to welcome to the program uh, Dr. Warren Farrell, described as the father of the men's rights movement. Uh, There's an election in America, of course, as if you didn't know, uh, which Warren is really interested in, but we're going to talk about a few things. Uh, Dr. Farrell, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, you might explain why you're just, I mean, apart from your great age like myself, why are you described as the father of the men's rights movement? Well, they just didn't know that I'm really the grandfather of the men's rights. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, uh, I wrote a book called The Myth of Male Power that came out in 1993, and actually before that I was deeply involved in these issues as well. Um, but it seems like the myth of male power is what really articulated um, what men's issues were. So, for example, the great majority of people felt that, um, that you know, that you could say a lot about men having problems and things like that, but essentially, all around the world, men were the ones that had the power. They, there was a we all lived in patriarchal societies, and that those patriarchal societies basically had men making rules that benefited men, um, and often at the expense of women. And so uh, I looked at that and I said, no, that's really not accurate. It, it, it's a bad, it's it's an inaccurate framing of what happened. What happened was not that there was – the world was not dominated by patriarchy. It was dominated by the need to survive. And men and women were not like slaves and slave owners. We were really – both fathers and mothers loved each other for the most part, and they, um, and they raised – and they both sacrificed their lives in different ways uh, to raise children uh, that they hoped would do better than they did. They did. And so – Feminists would say things like, um, you know, women sacrifice careers. Well, that was true, but women didn't even think about having careers because men took care of the money and raised money while while the women raised children. Men made their sacrifices in careers. Women made sacrifices of careers, but both of our parents made sacrifices. Um, you know, pe- people in, in Ireland that, that felt that they couldn't make enough money, uh, they moved over to, you know, and, and left their family and their homes so, and moved to the United States or someplace during the potato famine where they could make money during that time. And, um, and people, people in China moved to the United States to build railroads and they interned themselves and often died in the process um, so that their children and their wife could move over. Um, and and started started better in a new world. Okay, and, sorry, uh, Doctor Farrell, um, sure. uh, because the problem is now I'm getting very emotional here because um, this is what has not been said a lot about men. And um, the the interesting thing about this, when you talk about Chinese, when we're particularly building railroads in the US, we see an awful lot of it uh, here in Ireland, for instance, and, and and many places. But I'm familiar with that. You have, for instance, Indian restaurants here, 
And their staff are invariably male, but they're Indian or Bangladeshi or Pakistani. And then you suddenly discover that their family uh, are all in uh, at home and they've given up everything to travel abroad to raise money in order their family and children might be well. You go on a cruise ship and, and the staff are literally incarcerated on the cruise ship because they can't get off when the ship docks, but they've all got their families somewhere else that they're raising mm-hmm. money for. And I don't think this this story the way you've put it, it, make sacrifices in their careers has been told often enough. Yes, I, I agree, I, and I really felt it hadn't really been told. Uh, you know, we had, and and what I think nobody really understood was that that historically speaking, every society that survived trained its sons to be disposable, to be disposable in war. And to be and or to be disposable in the workplace, and so all your hazardous jobs are between ninety three and ninety percent ninety three percent and ninety nine percent male jobs and you know, our garbage is collected by men we uh, the our homes are heated by either the coal mining work that men do or the oil rigs that men work on um, the home, our homes are built by you know lumberjacks who give the lumber to uh, truck drivers who do long distance truck driving. These are all among the most hazardous jobs. Uh, we often eat fish caught in very dangerous areas so that um, so we can supply ourselves with some protein and these are the some of the contributions that men make and so to to sort of summarize this as oh men just have the power, men just want the power now i I was on the board of directors of the national organization. For women in New York City, that's the way my career started in these areas. So I'm very appreciative of the of um, the importance of women not being just having one role. We, we we absolutely need to bring our daughters up so that they can do anything that they wish to do. Uh, but we also need to bring our uh, our sons up um, being um, able to be full time fathers if they want to. The 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 Professions of technology, what we call in the United States the STEM profession, science, techno- um, uh, science technology, engineering, math, uh, those are professions that are generally dominated by men. And in the United States and many other countries, we're opening up those professions to women. That's really great. But we're not opening up the caring professions to men. So when there's a, a man and woman have a child, when the woman is pregnant in a middle-class home or above, um, and the two are married, uh, the woman generates three options. She says, well, what do I want to do here? Do I want to have children? Uh, do I want to be, uh, I mean, do I want to be with my children full-time? Do I want to be with my home, at home full-time? Or do I want to do some combination of both? And her husband sits around and waits for her to make that decision and says, you know, I, I have three options too. Option one is I can work full-time. Option two is I can work full-time. Or option three is I can work full-time. And so we're not sort of saying to our sons, no, option one is you can work full-time. Option two is you could be the one full-time home with the children and, and, and raising them because we now know that children do as well or better when they're raised primarily by their dads and the mother is still in the family and comes home in the evening. Uh, we, um, the, that's, an extreme, that's an extremely beneficial combination. Or you, as a, as a man, if, you have, if you're more of a sensitive type of guy, you could be a kindergarten teacher, first grade teacher, elementary school teacher. You can be a nurse. You can be um, 
in a number of professions that demonstrate that 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 reward you and pay you for the sensitive part of your personality, if that's the type of person um, okay. you are. Now, my guest is Dr. Juan Farrell, and um, he's described as father of the men's rights movement. His books are an extraordinary read, The Myth of male power and, and the one I really liked and we're, we're not going to stay on the books if you don't mind Dr. Farrell but sure. the uh, Father and Child Reunion um, are, are, are books that, that really strike at the heart of a, a challenge that's taking place in the world and there is now a conflict almost between men and women between what has to be described as feminism because there's no other word for it but as a a deeply feminist woman in Ireland wrote last week, there is no action plan amongst feminists to increase the number of women in the plumbing industry. Uh, and this is really, in a way, the sort of the, the point you're making, isn't it? That we're not opening certain areas to men that we should do, and, we're not, and, and, and women aren't going for areas uh, that have been dominated by men for other reasons. Yes, women have gone for the areas of prestige, like lawyers and doctors and high pay, um, and that, that involved a lot of education that have been dominated by men. But we don't find women, at least in the United States and most countries that I'm aware of around the world, um, applying for roles in construction. So we do see um, every once in a while here in the United States, you'll see a um, We'll, we'll drive by a, a place where there's a construction being done, and there will be a woman directing us on the on the road and the pathway. But you don't see her on the building, actually working in the construction site. You don't see her coming up from the uh, the sewers and the underground areas um, working. Um, and women are not not applying for these jobs, and we don't see women picking up our garbage, where you get up at three or four in the morning and you know work in the cold, the rain, the sleet, and the snow. So, so the, the the sort of the jobs that are the dirty jobs, the hard physical jobs, and it's not just a matter of jobs that require muscle. Um, in the states, at least, we where you go into an inner city, and there's a the, the most one of the most hazardous jobs is driving a cab, and obviously, as many women can drive as men, and uh, but women do not apply for cab driving jobs, even though women are less likely to be killed or injured driving a cab than men are uh, driving a cab. And so, if if one's life is at stake or one's is one is looking to be a firefighter, um, we have a, 70% of the firefighters in the United States are volunteers, and um, about 98, 99% of those volunteer firefighters are male. And so, these are things that that the dirty jobs, the hard jobs, the life-disposing jobs, the um, the jobs of combat and war, these are things that roles that men are still playing. And but but part of the challenge is that we're playing those roles of still dying in the culture, and no one is even saying thank you. But rather, but rather the the roles when we do play the roles of working 70, 80 hours a week to uh, be a, a CEO. No one is saying thank you for taking that extra, you know, not working 40 hours a week, but 80 hours a week to be that CEO and, um, and, and uh, organize life in such a way that four or 500 people can be employed. Uh, there's no acknowledgement of the sacrifices that men make. And that's very sad because everyone 
women and men want and need to be acknowledged. Now, um, to to conclude, though, um, you're going to start working, well, working in inverted commas, working for a woman because you're supporting Hillary Clinton. Part of that is presumably because you're a lifelong Democrat and liberal. But, but, but why get involved in this presidential campaign? Well, I'm, I've been trying to persuade Hillary Clinton's team. I, I, I have met Hillary Clinton and talked with her briefly um, about these issues. Um, but she, and then last night I went to a fundraiser for her, and uh, but I did not have the uh, chance to actually make direct contact with her last night. And uh, the, um, and but I've been working with members of her campaign for her to be understanding of the importance of, of, of fathers being more involved in the family and the importance of um, men uh, not not always advertising the pay gap as something that is discrimination between men and women, but rather is comprised of 25 different choices that men and women both make. And it's, a, it's really a pay gap between fathers and mothers, not a pay gap between women and men. Uh, when women and men do not have children and they've never been married, Women earn more than men do in the workplace, even when they've been working the equal number of years um, and, ha- and are the same age. Um, so very few people know that, and I've said that to her briefly. And I have to say, she has been completely 100% non-responsive. Um, so I'm very, very disappointed and sad. But I also felt that it was my responsibility, or you know, to at least make an effort to inform her and change her perspective on that. But she has chosen to, um, as, as Donald Trump says, play the woman card. And um, But I still support her more than I support Donald Trump because I feel he is, a, he is the quintessential a, um, example of the immature male and, and will, if anything, um, hurt the image of men and masculinity even further uh, than, than Hillary Clinton would. So we have two bad choices, unfortunately. All right. Um, it's been um, really good talking to you. I hope we can do this again. And maybe maybe either I'll come to you or you come to me for the next interview. How about that? That sounds great. I, uh, you're, you're just a really good question asker, and you listen really well, and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. That was um, Dr. Warren Farrell, described, of course, as the father of the men's rights movement, uh, Get the books, will you? The Myth of Male Power or Father and Child Reunion. Uh, to say they'll change your life, I'm not sure, but they'll change your perspective. My thanks to your guests and, uh, of course, your many thoughts to 53106. The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business. The two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Over to Europe, the Fine Gael MEP for Dublin, uh, Brian Hayes. Brian, welcome to the programme. Thanks very much, George. Thanks for having me. Uh, your cons- you're concerned about the EU and our public health alcohol bill. First of all, you might explain what the public health alcohol bill is. Well, well, George, it's a bill that was um, proposed to Dáil uh, last October by the then Health Minister, Lee of Varadkar. Um, and it followed a long public debate about the things we need to do to get on top of binge drinking. But some of the things that were proposed in that bill, for instance, 
uh, minimum pricing, um, having some restrictions on advertising rules, um, having restrictions on promotions, for instance, um, we're, we're all well flagged. One of the areas that's entirely new that no one has thought about in Europe, really, in terms of introducing is a new labelling system. So in other words, you would have on that labelling in terms of agri- alcohol, the grams of alcohol, the calorie count, health warnings um, and access for information. And that was all contained in this bill. Uh, even though the doll fell, the bill remains and will be shortly back and running um, at second stage in the doll. But in the meantime, um, as they're entitled to do, my understanding is that 11 countries, other countries of the European Union, have now raised concerns about this specific question of labelling um, alcoholic drinks. Logically enough, because if you're a manufacturer in France or Germany and you're, ex- you're, you're exporting to Ireland... Um, you're going to have to have a separate labelling run because Ireland will have different Okay, uh, Brian Hayes, interestingly, 11 countries mm. have objected. So this has caused quite a furore amongst your mates over there in, in Brussels. Um, and now, what's your view on it? Because you represent well, Ireland in Europe. I think we should stand our ground. And I okay. think we should be very, very clear to the EU that um, there's two things I'd say. Decisions are best taken in Europe at the lowest level, i.e. the level closest to the national member state parliament. So if Ireland unanimously or close to unanimously backs this, it will be wrong of Europe to oppose it. And I've said that very clearly to the EU Commission and to other people who are against this. But the other thing is this. I mean, we have a particular problem in Ireland when it comes to binge drinking. We know, what is it, every single month we lose close to 90 people because of uh, their exposure to alcohol. One in four of all youth suicides occurs as a consequence of alcohol. Mm. We have a particular problem yeah, that doesn't but, exist in other countries. Okay, and we well, need to be I, strong about this. I'm not sure it doesn't exist in other countries. Our Polish cousins, certainly, for instance, uh, have, have a drink problem. You know, many of the Eastern European countries have, have alcohol problems. But surely... If we spread this out just a little here, because the argument seems to be about packaging and the changes Mm. they might have to make. I mean, that is a bit like saying, uh, you know, that Ford will only make left-hand drive cars because, you know, most countries driving left-hand side the road, so tough luck, Ireland, uh, Britain, and I think Sweden have changed. So maybe it's only us and Britain. Like, I mean... I'm sure manufacturers of all kinds of things have to do uh, changes to yeah. adapt to other countries. And and that's the point I'm making here. But I mean, th- th- there is a question that they raise about what is an internal market. If you have an internal market, you play by the rules. The rules are such that there is some minimum description on, on labelling when it comes to alcohol products. Sorry, think, excuse me here. When you say internal market, you mean the market in Europe? Correct, across the so, 28. So, yeah. yeah. So, it, it, it just is, is the suggestion, therefore, that in things like labelling, we, we, mm. we should have common label for that internal market, is well, it? The, fir- the first thing is this. We, the, the Irish government, rightly put forward the bill. The Commission have raised some objections to it and other member states. Ireland have three months to reply to those objections. And ultimately, then, it'll be a decision for Ireland in consultation with others how they want to progress with this. I mean, it's also fair to say, George, it's not just about labelling. There's a lot of other things in the bill that in the round are good things 
in trying to 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 deal with the issue of alcohol we have in Ireland, and who's to say that some sensible middle ground solution could not be obtained uh, between the negotiations that will occur. What I'm saying is this: I think Ireland are right to stick to their position. Um, I think you know we know our country best when it comes to to dealing with this issue. But I think the other issue is this: you know we have led the way on things like. Um, um, public health debates and, I mean, plain packaging that James Riley did, I think, in terms of moving towards plain packaging of cigarettes was a useful thing. Other countries are now following it. Yeah, what Michal Martin, in fairness to him, did uh, 15 years ago at, at the time was attacked by all kinds of reactionaries in terms of banning smoking in pubs. But now it's it's the common price. You know, you know the majority of countries are moving in that direction. And I think we have an opportunity um, to lead the debate again when it comes to such a very important issue like alcohol. Um, and I know I've spoken to Michael uh, to our, our minister, um, Minister Harris. He hopes to raise the question at the next um, council meeting with other health ministers. But I think we, we need to be strong about this. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think I don't think that the profits of the businesses should win out over public health policy, and that's the essential point. But but it seems though, uh, like that. Dare I suggest you're arguing on narrow front? In other words, you're saying, look, I want I'm arguing about this particular issue because we have a problem. And this is how we're solving it. Surely many Irish people listening, many of them your constituents, will be sort of saying, hold on here. If they can tell us what to put on our bottle of beer, they can tell us something else. And Like kettles and toasters. Yeah, I, and I think that's, that, that's a fair point. But there, the problem is there's precedent. Um, we that we have, a, as you know, a ruling from the European Court of Justice going back to December last year when it came to minimum pricing of alcohol that the Scottish government wanted to do. Uh, the then court uh, raised a red flag on that issue and now it's going back to Scotland. Any issue which impinges upon what they describe as the internal market in terms of fairness and access to that market is frequently raised. And of course, if a decision comes from the European Court of Justice, it is de facto the actual position because we've signed up to these rules. What I'm saying is there may well be an opportunity over the course of the next few months to work up some solution which will allow uh, the 11 countries that have a problem to get over their problem, while at the same time allowing us to do what we need to do. All right, but just for the purpose of the listener, uh, it seems to me that there is much more than just, this isn't just about labelling. I mean, this is about a whole raft of solutions that we're putting forward uh, to counter. What I agree with you is uh, a problem for us, whether it's unique or otherwise doesn't matter. It's our problem. Um, and and one of them, like Scotland, the question of pricing is important. So there's more than just labelling yes. involved here. Is no, right? absolutely, absolutely, George. And like the minimum pricing issue is probably bigger in that um, it actually can restrict the cost of how much people actually buy the stuff for. What the what the European Court of Justice have said is it is better to do it by taxation rather than a minimum pricing structure because a minimum pricing structure does not proportionally take into effect those who can produce alcohol at, at different levels. What we have in Ireland is a particular issue when it comes to below-cost selling, whereby large multiples can sell at a loss alcohol, thereby encouraging people to buy huge amounts of it or use it for promotions. And they can then re- get that money back through other aspects of their business. So it may not actually be a solution on taxation purposes. So it isn't just about labelling. Minimum pricing is a big issue. 
Advertising rules is a big issue. The drinks lobby is a very well organised, a very important industry to Ireland. I'm the first to accept that. But at the same time, public health, in my view, should always win out. And I think, you know, I would prefer the European Union, rather than attacking Ireland about this, to actually follow the lead of the Irish government and follow the lead of the Irish doll in doing this in other areas, because it does help to have an awareness to the, the level of alcohol that exists in all of these drinks as they're imported and exported across the European Union. Um, it, it, finally, though, um, it, it, is there not a broader issue? Isn't there a concern that on something as what I consider to be very important to us, our our relationship with alcohol is mm-hmm. very important to us because it is a major problem. Don't we? If if the European Union is a problem for us, at what point do sovereign nations? be able to make laws for their own country? Well, it must must always be the case, George, that on this principle of subsidiarity, i.e. decisions are taken best locally, i.e. in member states, that that must always win out over the EU example. And I say that because, um, you know, the, the, the circumstances in Ireland are different to the circumstances in other parts of the European Union. And to make sure that we get the decision-making taking place locally, the EU has to be conscious of that. Now, just because they raise objections doesn't mean the whole legislation is cast to one side. In a common market where, you know, goods and services are traded as commodities across 28 member states, different member states will have different views about, you know, the importance of their industry. For instance, uh, the French wine producers, it's a pretty, it's a big deal as they go across the European Union. They're very sensitive and touchy yes. about it. Uh, Scotch whiskey is the same. Irish whiskey is the same. So if we're trying in any way to counter that by a measure that we're doing, they're going to have a view on it. But I think we, got, we can win those views in arguing as to why we want to do it. And I think rather than sort of losing the head with people and saying, you know, we're not going to take any direction here, we are better to do this by way of negotiation. And I think okay. we can have a good outcome from this. And I think, you know, in fairness to the government, and I think there's opposition support for this as well, we do need to, to work together at trying to curb particularly the problems with alcohol binging in Ireland. And that is, it's not, okay. you're right in saying, it's not unique to Ireland. There are other countries which have this problem, you know, Britain, Poland and other countries. But I do think we need to work together. Okay, but, but uh, finally before you go now that I have you, as the fellow said, <laughs> uh, in the Irish Times today, um, it's reported that senior civil service have warned the Minister for Expenditure and Public Reform, as Pascal who I think, that EU fines are likely if water charges are abolished substantial daily fines for non-implementation of the directive. Would you have any expertise in that area? I I think um, those civil servants are honestly telling the Minister what's likely to happen. Under the Water Framework Directive, uh, we signed up on two separate occasions to the principle of of charging for water. Uh, If you have what's called under Article 9 of the directive an established practice, i.e. the current system, and then you don't have it, uh, you're open to fines and penalties. Um, and I, I think what they, what those civil servants have told the minister is honest, is straight. People mightn't like to hear it, um, but I think they've exactly told the truth on this. Now, there's, it, there's no charge if there is a suspension. In other words, there is currently a suspension until we find out the outcome of that. But if into the future this is dropped, in, in my view, we, we are open to charges, we are open to penalties, because we have failed to address one of the key aspects of the Water Framework Directive, i.e. the pluralist principles. How else can you not have a pluralist principles 
unless there is some charging mechanism around that, whatever it is. So um, I, I think they told the truth to the minister. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. Asked Finney Gale, MEP for Dublin, uh, Brian Hayes. Uh, the, uh, I think a lot of people are, are asking a reasonable question. If cigarette manufacturers, as uh, Stephen Kieran of Balanaclash says, if cigarette manufacturers can have labels specific for Ireland, why can't alcohol suppliers? I think it's a question we're all asking. But, but remember what Brian Hayes is saying. This isn't about labeling. This is about a lot of the issues in that, uh, uh, alcohol bill. And, uh, what what's the problem? Uh, they have alcohol rates on them. Yeah, but I think what Veradko was looking for uh, is much more information on the label. And I have to say, for most of us, uh, we want more information on on labelling generally. And uh, so uh, we'll see how it goes. Brian Hayes is out there anyway, fighting the good fight. The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business. The two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Plans are afoot in the United Kingdom uh, for the Tory party, and it's interesting that it is the Tory party, to force employers to ask candidates whether they attended a private school. The cabinet minister, um, Matt Hancock, said recruiters should ask in an attempt to stop the poor missing out on jobs. I'm joined by the former Minister for Education, Neil Brannock. Neil Brannock, welcome to the programme. Um, Thank you, George. The provost of Eton um, is actually going to resign on f- from the Tory party, of which he's a member, on this. Um, why does it matter where, where you went to school? Well, I don't think it basically matters for where you went to school. But it does matter that all the talent and IQ that has been educated privately or publicly is available uh, to the good of the community. Now, why the province of Eton is resigning, I don't know. I mean, I believe the cabinet has about 70% of Eton connections. So whether the prime minister has seen they're all dodos and he needs fresh and new blood, or whether the man from Eton wants to be more exclusive than the cabinet, I'm a bit um, surprised by this because, of course, in Ireland, you wouldn't have to ask people. You'd know, looking at their CV and nearly the address they went to, where they went to school. Well, you rep- represented, of course, uh, all these uh, uh, private school parents when you were in Dunleer Down, didn't you? Well, now, we have a queer nice mix in Dunleer Down. If I don't even go to Fox Rock, your area, if I was a mammy, and it's usually the mammy, placing a daughter in a secondary school next September... I have 11 options. Convent schools, comprehensive schools, lawn grade schools. But if I was a mammy down in Wexford placing my child in September, I can only go to Gorey. So that I don't think you or I should get hung up about this private-public debate because unless you live in Fox Rock or Dunleary, it nearly doesn't apply. There aren't great choices. There was a lot of amalgamations. 
Gory is the Loretta Order with the Christian Brothers, with the old BEC, to create a very dynamic community um, council. No, but uh, the point, why the, the promised apparently of Eton, where Cameron went to school, is actually appointed by the government. So that's why he's a member of the Conservative Party. They're, they also have a headmaster and a board, but the actual provost, it's a stranger aid working, but the provost is actually appointed by the government because, as you rightly point out, more cabinet ministers have come from Eton than any other school. But, but his objection really is that what they are trying to do is by asking this question is they want recruiters almost to because they believe at the moment the private schools have an advantage in education they want uh, to to have a negative reaction to somebody who went to private school and that's why he's objecting he thinks somebody should just be judged on their talent and isn't yeah, that reasonable yeah the best person for the job. I'm sure you and I probably don't agree on gender quotas for women, but the whole purpose of these interventions and probably can be described as nanny state. Really, for me, the bottom line is, God, you know, talent and IQ isn't the property of people with posh school accents in private schools. And if you are only to feed in for your leadership uh, roles, people from one strata of society, then you're actually missing out a lot of talent available to you. And if you think of uh, the new, you know, new schools, fresh faces, let's meet our challenge, all the buzzwords of today. And you remember what somebody described the men in the doll as male, stale and grey. So if you're in a way contributing to changes, you think should happen in society, well, then this is a fairly harmless one. And uh, I don't think that the headmaster of Eton and myself would have much in common because I actually do think there there are times yeah. when... No, the point, you see, that he's trying to make is that there are a ton of things you can't ask now, sort of, yeah. on a CV or an interview. You can't ask somebody what their age is, and you can't ask them a ton of things. And obviously, you, you apparently in Britain, you, you can't ask them what school they went to. Now, so what he's saying is that increasingly recruiters, by asking people what schools they went to, that they would then, in some way, way, and I'm not sure how it's going to do it, like, to be honest, and I, I'm not hung up on this personally, but the thing is, that what, what he's saying then is that there will be a negative reaction to people who go to private school. Now, in a, it's fair to say, Neve Brannock, and, and as a former Minister for Education, you'll be aware of this, whatever we might say about private schools in Ireland, the idea of the public school, which is our private school, is absolutely entrenched in Britain, much more than it would be in this country. And I think as a consequence that Cameron and his mates from Eton are realising that actually they're not having a broad enough church in uh, ruling this country, in dealing with people in the top of the banking world, in changing society for an IT and all those challenges. There's evidently uh, a fear that they're going to be left behind. And one of the things they've tacked on is, ah, 
all the people who are in leadership here and are important went to the same school. Are we missing out by only networking on the golf club? And should we have people interviewing for prestigious appointments uh, aware that maybe there are people in Birmingham, and I've never been to Birmingham, who would have something fresh to contribute to this board? I just think the headmaster in Eton has been a little heavy footed. Well, good point. I don't think this will stop the networking on the golf no, course, George. But uh, but when you do go, like a, um, there's a famous rugby club in London called Richmond, and once upon a time, you you actually couldn't join Richmond Rugby Club if you didn't go to the right school. You know, I mean, it, it, in Britain, it had reached that kind of level. But you wonder now why and I'd never heard of Richmond but you did why did they change that rule? Well they found it harder and harder to get good players who went to yeah, the right well, kind of school. Yeah well then supposing you say get good brains Yeah you know, I agree yes Yeah, and that's really what it's about but the Irish situation is different because don't forget in Britain a lot of that private what they call public education is in the hands of the church and in the hands of limited companies. I would be uh, careful as a parent and somebody looking at the future of education in Ireland that we don't go down these kinds of uh, two-tier routes, but we actually move forward into a much more diverse uh, pool, which you can call upon. And that actually, you know, includes your women uh, and your men and I think there's a bit of the posh accent bit that, you know, are we deferential to people with posh accents? And if we are, I don't think the Paddy Cosgraves of this world would be too impressed. And either, evidently, the rugby uh, club wasn't impressed with the clot hopping that was coming from certain no, no. schools. They certainly didn't so, have any Irish fellas, that's for well, sure. I, yeah, Catholics and I know us, Irish need not apply <laughs> yeah. because the presumption was you were all good Catholics. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. The former Labour Minister of Education, uh, Neve Branagh. Uh,